Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Today's episode is brought to you by Wither. Welcome to this special episode of the Breaking Health Podcast. In today's episode, we'll hear a panel conversation from the recent DHIS event. Billy Deitch, a partner at Oak HCFT, moderates this conversation about access and transformation in complex and specialty care. Let's listen in. So I want to introduce our panel today. We're talking about specialty care and complex care and some of the challenges and opportunities there. Brandon, do you want to kick off? Hi, everyone. Brandon Kearns. Uh, I'm with Russell Street Ventures, uh, where we are building and scaling uh, value-based businesses going after vulnerable populations under full-risk arrangements. Um, Russell Street Ventures, despite its name, really is not a venture fund. It's a set of capabilities within this sort of a shared services function um, that are specifically tailored to taking full risk on vulnerable populations. Um, Our first two companies, uh, have been launched. The first is CareBridge Health, uh, which is going after the home and community-based service population within LTSS. And we serve through a 24-7 longitudinal model facilitated through telehealth, uh, like we just talked about, and in coordination with the caregiver that the state is already paying for uh, going into the home. Uh, the second business is uh, Main Street Health, which is looking to serve rural populations under full-risk arrangements. We're partnering with um, primary care, pharmacist, urgent care, uh, and also delivering 24-7 uh, longitudinal care in the background through a virtual modality. Hi, everyone. Christina Safran, co-founder and CEO of Equip. Um, I myself recovered from an eating disorder, uh, spent my entire adolescence struggling in and out of hospitals, was fortunate to have access to evidence-based care. Uh, in my recovery, learned that 80% of the 30 million Americans who struggle with an eating disorder don't get treatment. And uh, more horrifyingly, less than 1% actually have access to treatment that works. And so really set me on a life mission to ensure that every single person had access to treatment that works. That's our mission now to equip. And we do it by partnering with health plans. Access is really our North Star and building families, uh, fully virtual multidisciplinary care teams uh, to get people to full recovery. Excited to be here. Mark Prather, I'm the uh, CEO and co-founder of Dispatch Health, uh, where we bring the power of the hospital to the comfort of your home. And what that means is we can bring on-demand an ER to your home, essentially. Um, We can hospitalize you in your home. We can recover you or a sniff product in the home. And then somehow I found myself being the second largest provider of mobile imaging in the country. But um, we set out to do that uh, really to reduce total cost of care and do it in a manner that uh, improved outcomes. You know, I want to talk about a few things around complex care, right? And, you know, these are issues that, that all companies are facing, all providers are facing. But I think, you know, what, when I think about all your companies, it's all about access, right? Whether that is, you know, you know, Brandon, at least in the case of Main Street, taking that into rural communities and, you know, places where there's, there's you know, fewer concentration of, of providers, of patients, lower income levels, you know, for, for Christina, that is you know, providing virtual care. Markets taking you know, very complex care and bringing that into the home, but you're bringing access to people that wouldn't normally have it in a way that is very innovative. 
Um, and I think there's probably challenges that come with that as well. Uh, I don't think anyone would call it easy what you guys are doing. Um, and so maybe we could just sort of go around and talk a little bit about this. And maybe Christine, we'll start with you just talking about virtual care, right? And, and providing a care that's, you know, type of care that's been around for a long time. You talked about your own story, how you were able to get access to it, but now, um, you're doing this in a virtual way and, and what are the opportunities, but what are the limitations and how do you get to higher acuity care? You know, what, what do you see from, from an access perspective? Yeah, uh, great question. So first, just to ground everybody in sort of what eating disorders are, I think one of our uh, big kind of submissions is really educating people on the fact that eating disorders are incredibly prevalent. Again, one in 10 Americans struggle at some point in their lives. They affect uh, people really pretty equally across race, class, ethnicity, up to 40% of people who suffer are men. Majority of people with eating disorders are not technically underweight. We know that as food insecurity in a community rises, eating disorders directly rise. And, you know, perhaps most shocking to folks is that these have the second highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses. They are incredibly deadly. Um, and so uh, the treatment that works, you know, I, I think a, a big kind of trend in digital health is taking things that have been in academia and been proven in multiple randomized control trials, but unfortunately just kind of stuck in the ivory tower out into the community. Um, we know the treatment that works is it's called family-based treatment. And essentially how I describe it is takes the healthy people in the house to structure the home environment for pro-health behaviors, really based on our understanding that eating disorders are brain disorders. And for an illness that requires you to fight your brain multiple times a day, it's not only ineffective, but frankly, kind of cruel to treat it as an individual illness. You really need supports around you. Um, unfortunately, that has just not been disseminated. And really, the kind of standard of care became these brick-and-mortar residential and rehab facilities looks very similar to substance use that cost $45,000 a month and, and don't work. Uh, and so, you know, I saw this at 15, started a nonprofit, Project Teal, to raise money for people who couldn't afford treatment. It was the same year, 2008, that the Mental Health Parity Act was passed, phenomenal law. But, you know, we talk a lot about the unintended consequence of that law was private equity getting into the market and seeing more and more people have access to residential and no quality outpatient care kind of just blew my mind. Um, and so we started uh, Equip. Pre-pandemic, it was always going to be 100% virtual because, at, to your point, access was the North Star. I mean, I've talked to people in this room who can't find good quality treatment in New York City, San Francisco, let alone most rural places of the country. Um, there's a stat, there's something like 5,000 eating disorder specialists in the country, and I put specialists in big quotation marks because truly a fraction of them, 6 to 20% is the stat, practice evidence-based treatment. And beyond that, you don't need just one provider. You really do need a multidisciplinary care team for this medical and psychological um, issue. Again, second highest mortality rate. So I think what's been perhaps the most exciting thing for us is that again, was always going to be fully virtual, but we probably would have told you two and a half years ago, if you can find an in-person treatment team, it'll be better. You should do that. And uh, two years into seeing families, we've totally changed our tune. We really believe that virtual is the right approach for treating eating disorders. And, you know, that's for two main reasons that I see. The first is that I talk a lot about this idea that you can't build a life worth living if you're not living life. And unfortunately, so many of our existing treatment modalities really take people out of their lives and don't give them the opportunity to be in soccer, to be in Boy Scouts, to build that life that is worth living to want to drown out their eating disorder. Um, the second, and, and the former panelists talked about this a little bit in terms of really bringing your village to care. This is an incredible 
incredibly, incredibly hard illness um, for families. And, and we know that it works better when you can bring your entire village. When I was going through this, my mom and dad both worked. It was a nightmare for them to commute home to appointments Tuesday at 3 p.m., figure out how to find childcare for my younger brother. Um, they often didn't get to engage together in the session. And we now have families that are bringing not only two parents, but grandma and babysitter and aunt who, by the way, may live in a different state, but be an integral part of treatment in a way that just would never be possible in a brick and mortar environment. And we, we see that contributing to stronger outcomes. Um, I mean, that's really interesting what you're saying, because it's, it's, um, it's not about like, this is a alternative. This is really enhancing care is, is the point you're making. I think that's super interesting about the virtual model. So much of what we've seen as COVID is, is realizing, oh, you can take lower acuity and shift it to virtual, or it can be a supplement, but you're actually saying what we found is it's better outcomes. And that that's terrific. Um, you know, and, and what a way to increase access. Um, maybe Mark, you know, t- talking a little bit about dispatch. One of the things that I think, you know, we're investors in dispatch and, and huge believers, but I think if you're a patient, right, and someone's saying, you're going to get this care in your home, and it's going to be just as good as going to an urgent care, just as good as going to a hospital, that in itself is sort of an access issue, because you have to convince people that this is going to be better. And I think people start to see it, right? Wow, I, my hospital is terrible, and I get this in my home, and it's better, but it's a mental shift. How do you think about that? It's a challenge. I mean, I'm an old doc, I'm 25 years at the bedside. And when I trained uh, right there at UCLA in the late 80s, nobody went to the home. We didn't talk about the home. Real care occurred in the hospital. And it wasn't until I had an, uh, my own sort of family experience that uh, the hospital was not the best place uh, for those folks that I stumbled upon this literature, let's call it aging in place, um, where they talk about the efficacy of the home. And uh, a friend of mine, Bruce Leff, uh, was one of the earliest docs to hospitalize somebody in the home in the late 90s. And now we do that commonly in places like Australia, New Zealand, other places. But you look at this, you know, the biggest meta-analysis of all of these studies suggests a 20% mortality reduction for in-home hospitalization. So I read it and I said, that's BS. <laughs> I was like, no way does that really happen. Now, you know, eight years in, I get it. And so when we hospitalize somebody in the home, these are typically, as you said, Billy, folks that struggle with access. So the duals population, the homebound population, the LTSS population. And so when we go in and we hospitalize somebody, what we do is, one, we discount the DRGs so it's immediately cheaper. We bring all of the services that are needed in for that acute phase, usually three and a half days, nursing, physical therapy, you name it. And then guess what? We don't go away. We never discharge. And so the episodes typically last about 30 days and they stay on our remote monitoring uh, platform. They have access points to our nurses. And at the end of 30 days, our readmit rate today is running about 6% compared to, you know, 20% in the building. That's all there's, there's medical access, but it's also access to everything else that we provide. So we, uh, I was giving an, an example last night at dinner where in the middle of one of these episodes, they got a notification that their power was going to be shut off the next day. So we actually called one of our payer partners who was paying for this and said, is there anything you could do? They paid their electricity bill for the next three months. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing when you step into the environment, you see in context what's going on. That's the efficacy of the home, right? You're simply taking a good provider that would normally be in this sort of white gray room and you're in a towel and you're supposed to have a meaningful conversation to now place you in the living room in total context 
you're just naturally a better clinician. And, and from the patient perspective, are they, is there, is there a leap there? Or, or? There's an aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, and we're, yeah. you know, we're running up on several hundred thousand visits now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if anything, COVID kind of, you know, it's obvious that our business benefited from that. But um, I think there is an acceptance uh, of in-home care that I didn't anticipate in 2013. Yeah. Uh, that was the big question for me. It's like, I th- I know I could do this cheaper. I know I can, the clinical outcomes can be better, but is anybody going to want it? Yeah. And if you're in Denver ever, which is where we started, I was at a dinner party the other night and somebody said, you should just dispatch that. <laughs> Meaning <laughs> we'd become a verb. And, and I, <laughs> I, I think uh, that's where it's headed. That's great. This episode is brought to you by Witham a forward-thinking, technology-driven advisory and accounting firm committed to helping companies be more profitable, efficient, and productive in today's complex business environment. Witham's dedicated digital health services team is proud to sponsor this episode as well as the upcoming Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. Get to know them at www.witham.com. Me, Brandon. You know, feel free to take this from either a Main Street or Carebridge perspective. But you know, I was sort of thinking from a uh, from the Main Street perspective in particular around access, and you're bringing this to rural, you know, environments, rural settings, and that's been such a challenge, right? I mean, you think when we think about a new market for dispatch, it's sort of where is their concentration because that's how you can scale it. And you're taking this in a little different direction and saying, okay, where is there not care? And how do we do that? And how do we leverage the existing infrastructure? And maybe you can just talk a little bit about how you guys view that. Yeah. yeah I think you started to touch on the key challenges. Um, so as a finance guy, uh, ultimately I think about access uh, and how do you make the math work? Right. And value-based models thus far and whatever inning we're in have done really well within uh, areas of density and within Medicare Advantage. And so as you think about our two businesses, uh, CareBridge is serving the managed Medicaid population. Um, And so, you know, we have an an initial challenge there, given the thinner economics there. And then, as you mentioned, Main Street is serving the rural population. For us, uh, and it was referenced in the panel earlier, uh, and, and even you sort of referenced it with the families, we have to utilize the existing infrastructure that already exists. So in, the care, in case of CareBridge, with that paid caregiver or unpaid caregiver, which is often a family member already going into the home, how do we use technology to enrich that experience? That, that intervention, we can actually use that caregiver to tell us through a five-question survey, has this person's conditions changed? Yes or no? That can become that triage moment that allows us to then wrap around with the 24-7 virtual model. That's a simple thing. Yeah. You know, but makes a difference. Exactly. And in the case of, of Main Street, uh, which is, uh, you know, in many cases, just like an MSO, we're providing MSO capabilities to those PCPs, to the pharmacists, to the urgent care providers, uh, and then wrapping around again with that 24-7 clinical model. But the key, just from a unit economic perspective, is to utilize what already exists to make the math work in areas of lower density and then also in a pair base that's frankly a little bit less uh, uh, attractive. Yeah, I think the, the the pharmacy unlock that you guys had there is such an interesting one. The rural local pharmacy, it's uh, unique. And I think something that, you know, was a, a really smart thing to latch on to, to sort of expand the model. Maybe, Kate, um, assuming you can hear us, uh, 
I'd love to get, by the way, please introduce yourself uh, and give your background. That would be great. But also just, you know, for, for those in the audience, Kate's joining us from the payer perspective. And I, I think it'd be great to hear uh, your take on working with innovative models like this, right? Because this isn't your normal fee for service. A doctor sends a bill. Care is very traditional. This is taking hospitalization at home. This is virtual treatment for something that's always been brick and mortar. This is, um, you know, leveraging unique networks to to uh, provide care. So when you're thinking about partnering with, you know, folks like our panelists or or other folks in the audience, what what works for you all and what's challenging? That's great. Um, I'll, can you all hear me okay? Can I just get a nod? Yep. Okay. Great. Uh, so Kate Hopskinusen, um, thanks very much for having me. I'm excited, really excited to be here. I'm sorry I'm not there in person. Um, I'm a psychiatrist by background, work with adults and children in all treatment settings. Um, I've been working for payers for about the last 10 years across Medicaid, Medicare, and commercial, currently leading Optin Behavioral Care, which is an outpatient care delivery company, full-spectrum mental health substance use disorder um, one, uh, that's being built at Optum. And it's being set up um, absolutely um, to participate in value-based payment and value-based care. So um, love this question. So, uh, you know, the, the, I, I'm, I'm incredibly excited about these um, innovative care models for many of the reasons that Christina just said is it is, you know, we have a lot of evidence-based treatment for mental health and substance use disorders. So cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, lots of medications. We have, we have a lot of, you know, um, treatments that work. The main challenge is actually getting those treatments to people. And there are many barriers across, you know, personal, you know, privacy and stigma, transportation, um, payment, et cetera, a lot of the ones that Christina just described that really make it so you can't get those effective treatments to people. And so that's what I'm most excited about with, with the companies that are, that are um, developing in the space is that they figured out a way to take these treatments that work and overcome those barriers and actually get them to people. And so our, our ability to deliver care with fidelity to evidence is, is really improved for these models. The challenges are, um, and uh, are sort of also what we're describing, if you're going to deliver care differently, if you're going to use different methodologies, if you're going to use different sort of provider types, so maybe community health workers, for example, um, some, well, often the payers have to build a medical policy, build a payment mechanism really around those different models and those different locations of care. And so that can take time. The other is that we want to advance absolutely to full risk-based models, upside and downside risk, but it takes time to, you know, identify the population, measure the cost, build the risk model, and then even like develop a claims payment methodology through, you know, capitated payments, et cetera, to actually pay the claim. So there's a lot of sort of infrastructure um, that also has to be built to actually deliver these, these value-based payment models. But there's a ton of promise. We're all working incredibly hard on it. And there's many examples where we're, we've actually been successful and are moving the needle forward. As you were speaking, Kate, there's a lot of nods from the panelists because I think everyone's sort of working on that and uh, uh, trying to figure out how do we capture the data? How do we, um, you know, uh, bring that fidelity of the outcomes um, to, to make it all work? So I know that you're all experiencing it. Um, we can maybe shift shift back to that that uh, that piece in a bit, but um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, labor and, and access to providers um, because you know it's been mentioned a little bit here today, but uh, you know I think 
the more you read, that is the fundamental issue facing the healthcare system today. Uh, and I think for 2022, it's going to be less about um, about COVID necessarily and more about provider shortages. And, and that's not just because of COVID surges, that's because of the great resignation and, and big shifts. And, you know, there's data out there saying that from the start of COVID in February 2020 to December of 2021, 450,000 people left the healthcare industry, which is remarkable, right? Adding on to that surges where capacity gets strained um, or people are out and can't, can't work. You know, I saw that 8.2% of all jobs within uh, healthcare are open or vacant. So there's, there's tight demand and, 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 and tight shortages. And so I'd love to hear how you, what you're doing, what maybe just advice or, or what's working, what's, what's not working, you know, and I think it's unique for all of you. I mean, Christina, it's, you're competing against all these other virtual networks and everyone's, you know, well-funded and trying to hire. And, and, you know, for Brandon, we talked a little bit about it, but it's in rural environments and that has its inherent challenges. And then markets just getting people to do something a little bit different and in a, in, tight urban, you know, often urban markets. Um, it'd be great just to hear your folks take and, and Kate as well, right on the, on the behavioral side, um, how do you have network adequacy and how do you, um, you know, what, what can you do to help solve some of these issues and how are you thinking about it? Kate, Kate, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear your take from, from Optum's side, um, you know, how you're thinking about access to care and, and really from the perspective of having enough providers. Yes. So, number one, um, we have a provider shortage for mental health and substance use disorder that, that honestly is unlikely to change in the near future, right? Uh, we've done lots of stuff around loan repayment and trying to get people to, you know, go in different areas, and, it, and, it's, and it's unlikely to change. So, so, the reality is we've got to deal with this limited workforce. Um, and, and the other major issue is that our current workforce is used inefficiently. So, you've got, you know, um, psychiatrists you know, treating mild conditions where you could potentially treat those in primary care, for example, um, and, and other sort of mismatches of the resource with the clinical need. Um, and so I think that through technology, um, through use of peers, community health workers, so alternative sort of provider types, we could make much more effective use and efficient use of the limited resources that we have. So great examples are hub and spoke models, right, where you, where you have the psychiatrist, psychologist, therapist, um, you know, certainly in, in, a, in, a, in the hub, but then through telehealth and through digital means, you're able to out, reach out into rural areas and other underserved areas and with underserved populations to, to reach them better. Also through um, innovative ways of measuring outcomes using technology. That's another way to sort of, um, you know, identify need earlier. And then the last thing just around access, we think a lot about um, matching with the right care. So making sure, um, you know, some, sometimes all that is needed, for example, is a digital intervention. Um, and so we want to make sure that, that we, we make that match and certainly also identify when someone needs really, really um, resource-intensive interventions. Um, often that's the group that goes without care at all and ends up in an inpatient unit. How can we do a better job of identifying that need and getting, getting the right resources together for that person? And that's, again, through predictive modeling, through, through assessment triage, and, and better matching. I really appreciate that. And it's, and it's hopeful almost because I think you hear all these you know, statements, which are very true, that you kicked off with it. We have a provider shortage. But if we can, there's things we can do to lessen it. And that's, that's really interesting. 
Mark, I, I see you nodding along and we chatted even this morning about it a little bit. Uh, it would be great to hear your take on that. Yeah, I think Kate's point about, you know, we call it acuity segmentation at Dispatch. And so we're a logistics uh, company. And, and the thing we did really well was on the front end, really understand the acuity of the patient. And then that was really initially designed to get the right resource to the right patient at the right time. But those resources were all fairly similar. And then, you know, our, our step probably this last year and into next year is to segment the resource that's provided and match it to acuity. And so we have a variety of different provider types, everything from an EMT to an RN to a APP to a doc. And so who needs to go where and when and what can be augmented with virtual care? And it's kind of the holy grail, right? And it, it is, if you get it right, really sets you up nicely for value-based care and taking risk. Um, the other thing I'd say is as an old provider, the job's less fun. Uh, you know, 25 years ago, I walked around like a cowboy and I just put in chest tubes and intubated people. And it was, it was a blast, really, really amazing job. Uh, that became less so over the years, right? And I think just really engaging the providers differently. And, and we've had less attrition than most businesses. We've, it's been hard to recruit against the hospital. They can afford to pay a $50,000 bonus to an APP. Um, that said, I think the, the thing that's kept our provider workforce engaged is our approach to engagement. We, we highlight patient stories, big kudos for providers that, that do a great job. And there's just so many businesses that forget that part. And the, the provider is a widget, right? And they're not. Um, I'm an old musician. And so I used to always be the guy who ran the band. It's very similar. Like musicians are all kind of weird. Um, providers are different too. Uh, developers are different. You got to treat them different. Well, that, that sounds like a great time. Just kick back, put on your cowboy hat and throw intubate people. That's Mark's, <laughs> Mark's Saturday afternoon if he, he has some free time. Um, Christina, maybe, maybe switching, switching gears, I'd love to hear your perspective, especially, you know, in, in a virtual world that's hyper competitive. Yeah, I think there are a lot of similarities to what Kate and Mark said. So I think first, um, you know, we have a, we have a five, sometimes six person care team where everybody gets a therapist, a dietitian, an MD. We have both physicians and psychiatrists. And then what I believe is the secret sauce, uh, a peer mentor. So somebody who's been in a strong and active recovery for at least two years and a family mentor. So someone who's helped their loved one through the recovery process. And these people are really able to deliver messages, really look someone in the eye and say, I really get where you've been. I know how hard this is. I know how much this sucks and keep going. It's possible. It's worth it and are just so invaluable in the treatment process and really figuring out how we can leverage people to their kind of highest capacity when they're needed. I think also somebody brought up the point of like, therapy doesn't need to be an hour long session. And in fact, we really believe in a model of wanting to give people just the right amount of care that they need, but also not overdosing people on treatment that they don't need. The idea being like, go out, live life, build that life worth living, bring back your treatment, bring back your triggers to talk to with your treatment team. Sometimes the most therapeutic thing for our families is if they've had, you know, three weeks of amazing weight gain progress in a row. And they're like, hey, I want to go camping this weekend. And I have a dietary session Friday at three, but that's going to conflict. It's great to say, you're doing amazing. You don't actually need that. Actually, the biggest predictor of success in family-based treatment is families feeling empowered. And you can only do that sometimes when you do show them that you can do this without your treatment team. So that's a huge part of it. And then I think highlighting sort of 
the mission, the values. I actually think that kind of goes back to, I mean, we're, you know, venture backed folks here, but, but picking the right investors and making it clear from the very beginning that you're going to invest in people at the forefront. Um, we are clinical services businesses enabled by technology. And at the end of the day, like our people, our providers are everything. Uh, we always knew that, you know, 5,000 eating disorder specialists in the country, we would need to be innovative and, and think about this. And we've actually found that, you know, bringing in strong behaviorally oriented providers, training them intensively, giving them intensive supervision um, has been absolutely amazing in getting more people trained up in family-based treatment. And frankly, it's often easier to sort of train somebody who's in more of a learning mindset and learning mentality than sort of train somebody out of 20 years of, you know, the wrong way of doing things. I think is a, a big part of what we do and we were clear from the very beginning that our providers were going to be employees. Uh, I know a lot of other telehealth models have a 1099 model, and we felt that it was really important from the very beginning, and again, to invest in our providers, to train them, to supervise them, to give them, to pay them top of the market, to give them full benefits, unlimited PTO. Um, and then I think the mission is really, really special, something uh, so at Equip. 70% of uh, the folks who work here have lived experience either themselves or caring for a loved one directly with an eating disorder. And you just, you feel that every day. It is an incredibly, incredibly special culture. And, and I think you're right, making sure that every day you bring it back to the patient. And I think, look, scaling exponentially is is a challenge, but I'm always buoyed by the fact that the team knows why we're doing it because they know that Patients and families are literally dying from this every day. We need to move fast so that we can get to them and help them get to full recovery. Yeah, Brandon. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with with a lot with 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 what's already been said. Um, you know, in particular, we look at data driven acuity, Mark uh, and Kate, as you guys both uh, uh, referenced it. That should inform uh, the cadence with which you do the visit, the type of provider that goes out. Um, or even on a virtual uh, interaction. You know, the only other thing I would add um, is a simple reality. A lot of our businesses are growing really quickly. Uh, those of us in the room is really hard to recruit and retain talent and sort of outdo the churn that's somewhat natural in our space. The way we think about it is at scale, there's a reality that we're going to recruit average people. Right. We can't just always get top tier and you know top decile folks, but we can create a system whereby we assimilate average providers into that system and create top decile outcomes. And so uh, back to your point on sort of the investor base and thinking forward about that and investing in the technology and the heuristics, the gap closure mechanisms to ensure that when that average person you know, comes into the system, they can be world class and deliver the outcomes that we expect. Yeah, that's an interesting point. The, the technology is, I think, underline everything you're saying is so critical to it because if you don't have that platform that enables um, enables you to do all these things in the stratification, you're sort of nowhere. Liked this conversation? This is just a glimpse of what you can expect from the DHIS East Coast presenters and panelists. Revolutionize healthcare by joining the most pertinent discussions on June 8th in Boston. Save an additional 10% with the code DHISPODCAST. For more information, visit DHIS.net slash east.